When She Was Princess by William W. White Condensed from the Pages of Life Published in Reader's Digest in November 1945 as Princess Elizabeth A 1945 Perspective of the Woman Who Would Become Queen Elizabeth II In 2022, people of the British Commonwealth are celebrating the Platinum Jubilee, 70 years since Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne in 1952 at the age of 25. It was the start of the longest reign of any British monarch in history. In April, the Queen turned 96. This article was written in 1945 at the end of World War II and two years before Elizabeth married Prince Philip. Princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor will someday claim the allegiance of 489 million of the world's population when she takes her full title, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland and the British dominions beyond the seas, Queen, Defender of the Faith and Empress of India. She recently saw her sceptred isle go through the turmoil of sudden political change when Winston Churchill lost the election in July just two months after he declared VE Day. Her one recorded comment when she learnt that her good friend had been snowed under an avalanche of leftist votes was, Oh, bother. This is not to say that the events of the day were altogether lost on Elizabeth. She had been educated to think very seriously, while saying very little. At 19, she is already carefully coached and acutely conscious of the duties, dignities and limitations of a throne especially the limitations. The British have whittled away at the powers invested in the crown so diligently since four centuries earlier, when Queen Elizabeth I said to an over-presumptive minister, I will have here but one mistress and no master, that there is not much left. What is left is the power of creating peers, a never-used veto as head of the Privy Council, and the rather dubious honour of naming a Prime Minister who has already been chosen by the British electorate. At present, as heiress presumptive, as long as her father lives it is presumed he may have a male heir, Princess Elizabeth has no powers, no royal duties of state, and no constitutional functions. When she becomes Queen, her most vital contribution will be that of a symbol of continuity. Governments may fall, parties may dissolve, but the crown goes on forever. In that fairly certain knowledge, the British find an unconscionable pleasure. The crown remains one of the few expenses the British bear without grumbling. So far, Elizabeth has shown every prospect of living up to a prediction made recently by one of Britain's elder statesmen. She has intelligence, personality and charm. She will be a good queen. She may even be a great one. Good queen or great, she will be an attractive one. Mannequin height, 5 feet 6.5 inches, Elizabeth has inherited from her Hanoverian antecedents an ample figure, a lovely rose and cream complexion, good white teeth and a sturdy constitution. Unfortunately, she is not photogenic because her chief attraction lies in her colouring. Her regal bearing reminds old-timers of her grandmother, Queen Mary. Less light-hearted than her attractive 15-year-old sister Margaret Rose, whose superb mimicry of visiting dignitaries has more than once caused gales of laughter at the royal dinner table, Princess Elizabeth has already shown traits which indicate she has a mind of her own. 
a year ago when, like her subjects-to-be, she became due for national service. The king ruled after long deliberations with his counsellors that her training as a princess outweighed the nation's increasing manpower problems and that bets should not join any of the women's auxiliaries, known as the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS. But Betts had other ideas, and not long afterward the palace made a straight-faced announcement that the king had been pleased to grant an honorary commission as a second subaltern in the ATS to Her Royal Highness, the Princess Elizabeth. Elizabeth passed her driving course in two days less than the prescribed time, after attending lectures and getting her hands greasy dismantling engines. Most of the students finished this ATS driving course by driving to London for the experience. It was ruled that Elizabeth should not, since the risks of a smash involving the heiress presumptive would be too great. But while the wheels of government were churning out that ponderous decision, Elizabeth was driving a camouflaged army vehicle up to London from the country. She arrived at the palace after making two complete circuits of Piccadilly Circus in the rush hour to get in as much traffic as I could. When the princess embarks on a venture, it completely dominates her life. Thus, while she was at the driving school, the royal dinner table conversation was centred around spark plugs and engine performance. Currently, the major topic of conversation, as far as Elizabeth can guide it, is horses. She hopes to have her own stable in a year or so and race against her father. At dances in Mayfair private houses, which Elizabeth frequently attends accompanied by her lone lady-in-waiting, and from which she has been known to return as late as 3am, she dances with many different young gallants and favours no one in particular. But the names of several young peers keep recurring constantly. Handsome blonde 29-year-old Lord Wyfold, the young Earl of Euston, or the good-looking Duke of Rutland are the usual three. Elizabeth is bound by the provisions of the Royal Succession Act to marry only with the consent of her father in council and not to marry outside the Protestant faith. If and when she marries, her husband, on her accession to the throne, would not be king but prince consort, like Victoria's Albert of Saxe-Coburg. The number of eligibles who would care for this subordinate role is problematical. Elizabeth's first official public tour after her father became king was in Wales. Instead of appearing in the stately setting of an evening court at the palace, the princess made her debut in the orange glow of furnace fires in a Welsh tin plate mill. Since then she has made many appearances with her family and by herself. She has done two radio talks and made a dozen speeches. Her most important engagement so far was the launching of Britain's newest and greatest battleship, HMS Vanguard. Although it was a cold, grey day and she confessed to a nearby official, I'm too nervous to feel the cold, she went through the ceremony without a flaw. Only later did she show she was more woman than princess. She had been presented with a beautiful diamond brooch and while the chairman was labouring through a ponderous speech of welcome, Elizabeth sat quietly, turning the Rose of England-shaped brooch over and over in her hands, admiring it for all she was worth. Elizabeth's training has been arduous. Grandmama England, Queen Mary, seems to have had a firm hand with young Elizabeth, and she got in return more respect from little Bets than from her other grandchildren. 
The two Lascelles boys, Gerald and George, when very young, had a terrifying habit of rushing into a room and attacking Queen Mary's ankles. She was often obliged to put up a spirited defence with her famous parasol. Happily, Elizabeth was less boisterous. Queen Mary taught the child the art of talking intelligently to the various visitors at court, and young Elizabeth early learned her most difficult lesson, that she must appear to be enjoying the talk, however dull. So that she might be well-informed or curious about many subjects, her grandmother trotted little Elizabeth through the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Royal Mint, the Bank of England, the Science Museum in South Kensington, the Tower of London, Westminster Abbey and the National Gallery. Since she was six, Elizabeth's formal education has been supervised by an able young Scotswoman, Marion Crawford, Crawfee to everyone in the royal household. If young Betts found it easier, as indeed she did, to absorb history while lying on her stomach on the floor of Crawfee's room, Crawfee had no objections. By the time Elizabeth was twelve, she had shown a marked aptitude for history and languages and a sublime distaste for mathematics. At that point, her education became a matter on which the cabinet had to be consulted. Elizabeth's mother wanted her to go to a girls' school so she could meet more of her contemporaries, but the choice of a school and the specialised curriculum necessary for a royal person were difficult so it was decided she should have a staff of tutors, as Queen Victoria had. Her historical background includes the study of constitutional changes from Saxon times to the present, as well as the history of British land tenure and agriculture. She is also well-versed in American history and speaks French fluently. To what would in Victorian days be called the accomplishments, she plays the piano and sings agreeably, Elizabeth added completely 20th century arts. She swims, drives a car, likes American dance music, has the good hands and pretty seat of an accomplished horsewoman, and is a good shot. When she was very young, Elizabeth was asked what she would like to be when she grew up. Without a moment's hesitation, she answered, I should like to be a horse. Time has served to modify that ambition. Whether anyone would genuinely like to lead the antiseptic and rather empty life of a modern queen may be a matter for doubt, but Elizabeth will have that duty. That being the case, her ambition is to be a good queen. If she, like the earlier Elizabeth, reflects and encourages the contemporary spirit of her people, she may occupy a position in history of similar importance. The first Elizabeth built the British Empire. The second, by gentler means, may keep it together. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Music